Monica was divorced and now a single mom with two little kids. She wasn't looking for a relationship. Kevin was a nice guy and he'd never been married. When they first met, there was a chemistry between them, but Monica was reluctant. Fortunately, Kevin was persistent. This is their story, and it's a good reminder for all of us. When you have someone you love, be sure to appreciate the time you have with them now, because sometimes the unexpected can change everything. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. How did you and Kevin meet? Uh, Well, we met. I was a divorced single mom of a six and two-year-old, and uh, I was definitely not interested in dating anybody or looking at all. But I was working at a bank and he came in one day and wanted to open a bank account with me. And so he had told me afterwards that he had actually came in the week before to cash a check and he came to my window and I cashed it. I don't remember any of that, of course, but... uh, You must have made quite an impression that day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And uh, he decided to come back and basically open a bank account that he didn't need just to get to sit down with me in the office and talk with me. So, you know, I was very professional. I went through the whole account opening process. But what I had noticed was I felt really comfortable around him. He made me laugh. Uh, We were just kind of talking about different things. Like we were talking about The Walking Dead and what had happened in the latest episode. And it was, it was nice to be around a guy that I didn't feel like, you know, anxious or awkward or it just, I felt very comfortable talking to him. Like I had known him my whole life. 
That's an interesting approach to plan to open a checking account that you don't need. <laughs> right. That is novel. So I didn't really think much of it. You know, I just thought like, oh, he was a nice guy. Okay. You know, I got a bank account open. Yay. But I think it was maybe the day after he had actually found me on Facebook. And I was thinking like, uh-oh, oh no, creeper. You know, <laughs> This guy found me on Facebook. What does he want? Uh, he had sent me a message, you know, just saying, hi, how's it going? And uh, I completely ghosted him for months because I was like, no, this is weird. You know, he's a customer. I, I'm not going to friend him. I don't want him to see anything about my personal life. You know, I wanted to keep the relationship professional. But so I felt kind of bad because he was really nice and definitely could have been a friend. But I was just like I said, at the point where I didn't want to have anything to do with a relationship. I was married to my ex only, we were only married less than three years, but we had been together 14. I had met him when I was 14 years old and I was 28 when we got divorced. So I don't think I even knew how to flirt or how to date or any of that. But anyways, I don't know what made me change my mind. But months later, I decided to unblock him and look at the messages that he had sent me. And he had actually sent me like a message once every month, like, hey, how are you? You know, just kind of, I guess, testing the waters, but I had never gotten them because I'd blocked him. So I read the messages and I was like, um, okay, well, maybe I'll reply back. And I was like, hey, hi, how are you? You know, just really lame. <laughs> but we ended up agreeing to go get a cup of coffee. And uh, I figured, okay, if he's a total weirdo, you know, I can get up and leave. I'm in a in a uh, public setting and I should be safe. We ended up sitting there in the Starbucks near my house. And we sat there for almost four hours just talking. And it was so easy to talk to him. And he was funny and he was intelligent. And I mean, right away, like I said, I got that feeling again, like, oh, like I feel so safe and comfortable. And I feel like I can be honest and be myself around this guy. So I was honest with him. I told him I didn't want a relationship. I wasn't looking for anything like that. I had two small kids, you know, just focusing on my life. And he said, that's fine. He said, let's be friends. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, we know how that ended up. So <laughs> we, we ended up more than friends. But he just, he really won my heart, you know, just, and, and consistently, just really nice. And part of me was like, okay, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, okay, what, what is this guy hiding? Like, <laughs> what's, what's wrong with this guy that he's, you know, he was 38, 37 when I met him and he's not married. He doesn't have any kids. He lives in his own house. You know, I'm like, okay, so what's wrong with him? Yeah. But, why isn't he taken already? Right. Right. But he had been in a relationship for about eight years and had recently got out of it. And from what he says, it was a pretty bad relationship. She was very demanding. So, so we kind of both came from bad relationships and, as adults, we kind of just put everything out on the table. And I told him, I said, you know, 
let's be open and honest about everything, about finances, about expectations, about needs and wants. And let's let's try to do this in a in a healthy way, you know, and I'd never had a healthy relationship before. You know, even seeing my parents' relationship growing up, it wasn't a healthy relationship. I didn't really have anything to go off of, but it was just so easy. It was so easy just to coexist, and it was fun, and we had so much fun. We did so many things. So you guys started dating seriously, and you already had two kids. How did the kids react to this new man in their life who's not dad? So I was really cautious about him, you know, being part of their lives right off the bat. I had actually dated him seriously, probably about three or four months before I even let him meet the kids. I wanted to make sure this guy was going to stick around. You know, I, I didn't want to introduce my kids to somebody and them get attached and then, you know, oh, he's gone, you know, but we finally did meet at a park where the kids, you know, I brought them to the park and he had showed up and, and I introduced him and, and I kind of talked to them a little bit about like, Hey, you know, um, mommy's got a new friend, <laughs> you know, that, you know, that whole story. And how, how old were your kids at that point? Uh, my daughter was only two and my son was six. My daughter took to him right away. She was absolutely infatuated with him the first day that she met him. And it was so funny because he was this big guy, you know, he was six two, you know, broad shoulders, big guy with a big old beard. And she was this tiny little thing with, you know, dark hair and pigtails. And everybody would say that they look like Sully and Boo from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> so, but she had him under her thumb the minute they met and they were buddies. They did everything like together and she would always want him to pick her up. The very first thing she actually had ever said to him was Kevin funny. So she, she understood too. He was, he was a fun guy. He was funny. It seems like he was kind of a good match for everyone in your family. Yeah, definitely. My son, it took a little bit of warming up. I think my son, even at age six had a lot of feelings like, I need to be loyal to my dad and loyal to that relationship. So I can't like this guy that much, you know, and I think that's kind of where he was coming from. My son had a lot of uh, emotional issues when Kevin and I had first met and my son would have these fits where he would just scream and cry and kick and oh, it was just, it was awful. But it was, I mean, later I found out it had a lot to do with, anxiety. And me and his dad divorcing and his dad at the time was an alcoholic. Um, he's been sober now for, gosh, almost four years. But he would throw these tantrums. And I remember one time Kevin was over at our apartment and my son was throwing this tantrum. And I looked at Kevin and I just started bawling. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't have to deal with this. I know that you know, you don't want to deal with this, you know, you can leave, it's okay. You know, I was giving him the out. Because I was like, this is when you have kids, you have the ups and downs, and you have the hard times. And I didn't think he knew, you know, what he was getting himself into. At that point, I was like, when you get with somebody with kids, my kids come first. And 
I didn't know if he was ready for that, but he had basically raised his niece and nephew. So he, he was really in tune with kids. He was a big kid himself, but he really helped me through that time because he told me, he's like, okay, well, you know, he's doing this for attention and, you know, you need to put some ground rules down. And I'm like, whoa, 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 this guy's telling me how to parent my kid. (laughs) But he did it in such a respectful way that he was like, hey, have you tried this? And I was like, "Uh, oh, no. Okay. And so I did and things were getting better. I had signed up for love and logic parenting class. And he went with me. I didn't even ask him to. And he was like, I'm gonna go with you. So I can learn this stuff too and help you out. I that's just the kind of guy he was. He was invested in the very first day. Take us through what happened starting on Saturday morning. So the kids would go with their dad on the weekends. So it was really nice because Kevin and I got to spend one-on-one time during those times, you know, and, and just really reconnect during the weekends. And we would always do something fun. I mean, we went to so many concerts and comic cons and events and festivals and, and he really loved going out and doing those kind of things. So we had not really planned much that day, but we slept in and we ended up going to the mall and watching a movie that it came out and we were just hanging out. We went to the mall, we, you know, got some ice cream and then he had looked up on his phone that there was going to be a tattoo expo at one of the casinos nearby in town. So he's like, Hey, you want to go to this? And I'm like, sure. And he had no tattoos. He, I did, but he just knew that I liked to go to anything that was like, arts and crafts to get inspired. I'm an artist myself. And so he was like, Hey, you know, in, in casino, so let's go. So we ended up going and kind of lost interest in the tattoo expo pretty quickly, but we ended up gambling and having fun. And when we left, it was probably about nine o'clock at night. And he's like, I'm hungry. And I'm like, I'm not really hungry. So he got this pastrami sandwich from the casino. And he was, I remember he was driving home, driving us home. And he was eating the sandwich. And he was like, oh, my God, this is the best pastrami sandwich I've ever had in my life. And I'm like, what? Really? And he's like, this is so good. He's like, have a bite. And and I was like, no, thanks. That's okay. And he was like, oh, this is just so wonderful. I don't know why this tastes so good. Anyways, so we ended up going home. We stopped by Walmart on the way back to get some things for the house. And we were putting together the kids' bunk beds uh, in their bedroom. And we had finished putting together the bunk beds that we had gotten them. At this time, we were already living together. He had this three-bedroom, two-bath house that he was living in that he rented from his brother. And I had this one-bedroom little apartment. And we were kind of at that point in our relationship where it was like, oh, okay, you know, this makes sense. So we were living together. And uh, I just remember him saying like, hey, you know, I'm I'm getting kind of tired. It was like already close to one in the morning. And he turned on a pre-recorded football game and he got into bed and I got into bed next to him. And, you know, I remember the last thing 
of me saying was, I love you. Good night. And he would kind of do this thing where he would like itch my head to like put me to sleep. (laughs) I don't know. It was just something so, so endearing, you know, that just so comforting. And, and I fell right asleep. So it was Sunday morning. Again, the kids were with their dad that weekend and he had to work. He had to be at work, I think either nine or nine 30. And I had woken up and he was notorious for not setting his alarm. And so I knew, you know, might as well nudge him and make sure he's getting up for work. And I was off that day, so I was going to sleep in, but I, um, I remember kind of nudging him and he didn't respond. And then I kind of like nudged him with my foot on his leg. And I remember it being cold. And um, I was just thinking, you know, maybe it was cold because, you know, the blanket was off of his leg and we lived in this brick house that had didn't have carpets. So it got kind of cold at night and he, he didn't respond. I was like, Kevin, wake up. So I got up and I went around to his side of the bed and I kind of shook him and I was just a split second. I thought he better not be screwing with me like he, you know, pretending that he's asleep, you know, but then I'm like, oh, my God, I hope he's screwing with me. I, t- I flip on the light next to him and he had um a sleep mask on because he has sleep apnea. And I remember just ripping that mask off his face in a split second. And I noticed something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages, that little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut, even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. 
It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. His face, and this was a really hard thing to get out of my mind for a long time, but his skin was like a a pale, like grayish blue, and his lips were purple. And... I was screaming at him, Kevin, wake up. Kevin, get up. And so I grabbed my phone and I called 911. And I, I'm i telling this lady on the phone that my boyfriend's not waking up. And so she's asking me, you know, where do I live? And I, my, my mind is just going. I don't even know what's going on at this point. I'm freaking out. And... I, you know, I remember her telling me, okay, you need to start doing compressions and, and, you know, can you breathe into his mouth? I said, his, his lips are purple and his tongue is kind of sticking out. And, um, his eyes were closed. And so she instructed me to get up on top of him and start doing chest compressions. And she was you know, telling me to count to four and I was doing these chest compressions and then she told me, you know, is the front door unlocked? I'm like, no. So I remember I had to get off and I ran to the front door and I unlocked it and I swung it open and I ran back to the bedroom and I got up on top of him and he was a big guy. So I literally had to like sit on top of him to do these compressions and I'm just screaming one two three four (sighs) until the paramedics came and I remember somebody grabbing me my shoulders and telling me okay we got it we got it I went into our living room and I just crumpled onto the floor and I, I couldn't believe that something like this would happen
Like I said, it was really hard for me to get the image of his face and the color of his skin out of my head. And a really good friend of mine later had helped me by telling me, she said, you need to picture his face normal. And she said, you should put his picture of his face on your cell phone so that every time you open your cell phone, you see him smiling and not like that. So, so the paramedics continued CPR from that? <laughs> they did. Um, I remember them coming back into the living room and kind of updating me and letting me know that they're trying everything that they can. And I was like, okay, okay, you know, I trusted them and, you know, that was their job. And I just sat there in the living room and I remember I, I called my mom. I don't remember actually if I called my mom or his mom first. He was really close to his mom. <sighs> but when I called my mom, I was hysterical. I told her, he said, something's wrong with him. He's not breathing. And she tells me, she said, did you call 911? I said, yeah, they're here. And she said, okay, baby. She's like, I'm going to, I'm going to call your brother because I know I can't drive to get to you right now. Because she was so upset. I said, okay. And so she got off the phone with me. And I called his mom. And I said, something's wrong with Kevin. I didn't want to say that he was dead. Because I didn't know. I didn't know if they could bring him back. I just remember her voice. God. She just was screaming, what? What? And I said, you need to get here now. She didn't drive, so she had to wait for Kevin's nephew to come get her. Kevin's nephew was actually really close to my age. And, um, she showed up a short time later. I, I'm, I'm missing bits and pieces of this time because I think I was just so much in shock. And I don't remember who showed up first. I just know that people were moving around me and I was sitting on my floor in the living room and I just remember this feeling like my entire body was being ripped apart from the inside out and that I just wanted to hold myself together. I just, I wrapped my arms around myself trying to just hold my body together because I really felt like it was just going to come apart. I know that my sister-in-law got there before my brother did. He was farther away. And you know, my sister-in-law and I, we weren't really very close. We were, I think we were like 14 years apart in age. So we never really had a close connection. But I remember she just sat on the floor with me and she just sat behind me and wrapped her legs around me and just held me. That's good. It's important to have someone there with you. <sighs> she got there. I know she got there first because they lived down the street from us. My niece was with her. My niece was only 15. And I just remember thinking I can't be falling apart like this in front of her. I don't want to scare her. <sighs> but gosh, she was so brave. She was so brave. And even... At the funeral, she came and sat right next to me in the front row with this family, and she held my hand throughout the whole funeral. 
So my brother and Kevin's mom actually went to the same church. So my brother was there and I remember him asking her, do you want me to call, you know, the priest, whatever his name was to come do a prayer. And, uh, the priest ended up coming and I'm not religious. I was raised Catholic, but as an adult, I've chosen to not identify with a specific religion. But, uh, once the paramedics had told us that they said at this point, you know, it, we can't do anything more that he wasn't showing any, any improvement. Um, so they were unable to revive him and, and, um, Kevin's mom and I went into the bedroom and Kevin was laying on his back on the bedroom floor. I'm sure the paramedics had moved him there, you know, to, to have him on a hard surface, you know, but the priest went in there with us and he said, you know, his prayers and I felt so bad for his mom. I mean, as a mom myself, I could only imagine that pain. She was brushing the hair off of his forehead and telling him that he was going to be okay. And I was there just holding his hand on the other side of him. <laughs> I would say based on his appearance, he probably had passed hours earlier. Would that? Yeah. You think so? Yeah. I remember one of the paramedics had said that they didn't think that it could have been a, a heart attack or a stroke because he would have, you know, startled awake or sat up or moved, you know, in a way that would have woke me up. I was right next to him all night. For a long time, I had a lot of regret because I was wishing that maybe I had gone, gotten up earlier that night and gone to the bathroom and checked on him. So ultimately on the death certificate, they put it as cardiac arrest. His mom didn't want to do an autopsy. And I understand. I, I know that could... <sighs> Kevin didn't like doctors. He, he didn't like the idea of surgery. He would have... He wouldn't have wanted to. But it's hard not knowing exactly... That's what I was just thinking. It's got to be difficult to not know actually what happened. Yeah. Like I said, he had uh, sleep apnea. But, you know, in the three and a half years we were together, he had never went to the doctor for it. And I had asked him once, you know, I didn't really know much about sleep apnea. And he was, he was like, yeah, you know, I've had this machine for like eight years. And he had gotten it at a yard sale. And like I said, like now, like hindsight, I should have been like, no, you need to go to a doctor and actually like, I don't know, are there settings that should pertain to you specifically? And he had the sleep mask and he had a full beard. So you know that it didn't completely, you know, I guess suction to his face. And 
you know, I'd never asked him, how do you know you have sleep apnea? You know, did you ever go to a doctor? I had finally convinced him to go to a doctor for his anxiety. And it was just probably four months or so before he died that he went and gone on anxiety medication. And he had a lot of anxiety around his health. He was constantly like hyper aware of changes in his body. And he was so afraid of dying. So what makes me so sad is that he, I hope he didn't know he was dying. I hope he, I hope he didn't know because he would have been afraid. You know, I remember that, that day, at one point, a female police officer had taken me into the spare bedroom and um, sat down with me and asked me some questions. And I remember another person being in the room, and I don't exactly remember who it was, but it was a friend of mine. And uh, the police officer was asking me, you know, questions about what had happened, if he had been sick or, you know, just kind of getting the idea of, of, you know, what happened. Like, you know, obviously they come on scene and there's a person that's dead. And, and for a split second, I thought, oh my God, what if she thinks I killed him? How do I prove that I didn't kill him? And I mean, I guess if you would have seen the state I was in, then you probably would have guessed that I didn't. Plus, I was doing CPR when the paramedics arrived. That is kind of surprising because usually that's just routine, you know, to investigate a, a, someone who dies at home. Yeah, I mean, if you would have known us personally, you would have known that I had absolutely nothing to gain from him passing, and I had everything to lose. How long before the kids came home? So, um, after they had uh, removed Kevin's body from the house, a friend of mine drove me to my mom's. And this is actually the first time I saw my mom since I had called her that morning. And I just remember plopping on her couch and just sobbing. My old boss and my other other manager that I had had recently at my job at the bank had came to my mom's house. And I was, we were all really close. We were really close-knit family, work family. And they sat with me and talked with me. And, and I'm like, how am I going to tell my kids? Are they even going to understand? So my daughter was five and my son was nine and we hadn't really had anybody pass away in our family, especially not somebody that they just saw, you know, two days before. I remember my ex-husband brought in the kids to my mom's and I was sitting on the couch and, you know, the looks on their faces at first when they walked in the door, they were excited to see me and then their face, their expressions went to like confusion. Like, why is mom crying and why is she here? And 
they walked over to me and I told them, I said, babies, I have something very sad to tell you. I said last night, <sighs> Kevin passed away. And my daughter just looked at me and her eyes got so big. And then her face just twisted into a cry. And she just cried out. And I was like, how does she even understand what this means? Like, and my son just crumpled into his dad's arms. And I was holding my daughter and my ex was holding my son. And we just held each other and just cried. And I said, do you know what that means that he passed away? And my daughter looks at me and she says, he's dead. <laughs> they were so close to him. They loved him so much. And he loved them. He told everybody that they were his kids. He would tell me, he says, I don't know how you did it, but you had my daughter before I even met you. <laughs> as hard as it is for you, it's got to be so difficult to see your kids in pain. Yeah. That was so hard because, you know, part of me inside me knew that I'm going to survive this. But I just, I, as a parent, you don't want anything traumatic happening to your kids. You want to protect them. You want to make everything okay. And I couldn't make this okay for them. This happened about a year ago. <laughs> Actually, from today, our recording date, Tomorrow is one year. Exactly. Oh. How are you coping now? How are you doing? <laughs> I know I might not sound like it, but I'm actually doing. Yeah, I don't mean right this minute. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, you know, I am doing as good as could be expected. When I got divorced from my husband, I was 28 years old with two tiny kids, and I had to go into survival mode. You know, I had to find us a place to live. I had to support them and raise them, and I had to start over from scratch. And I think... You know, after a couple of days, I realized, okay, I need to go back into survival mode and I know what I need to do. You know, I couldn't live in that house again after that. I couldn't stay there. I didn't go back to that house for a few days, actually. I remember that when I left that day, I had grabbed some clothes for the kids and their little stuffed animals that they sleep with and stuff. And, and it was maybe a couple of weeks later that I needed to start moving things. And I had went over there with my kids 
I had planned on staying in the car while my mom went in and grabbed some clothes for us. And I just hear my daughter from her car seat in the back. And she said, Mommy, is it scary in there? And I say, no, baby, it's not scary. And she's like, well, why don't you want to go inside? And I say, because Kevin's not there and it makes mommy sad. I said, but do you want to go inside? Do you want to grab some of your toys? And she said, yeah, I really want to. And so I went in with her and I said, see, it's not scary. And it wasn't. There was no sign of anything. It was just that he wasn't there. That's where you guys made memories, though. That's got to right. be the difficult thing. That's that's the couch we sat on. and Right. And it being so sudden, it was just so strange, you know, to be there one day and not be there the next day, you know. You were sleeping when this happened. Do you have trouble sleeping now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I didn't go to therapy right away. After this happened, I think I was just kind of in survival mode and trying to get our lives back together. And so it didn't really bother me right away, but then I couldn't sleep. I used to love to sleep. I would sleep 12 hours a day if I could, but I was having trouble falling asleep and staying asleep. I would wake up in the middle of the night you know, five or six times just to check that the kids were still breathing. And then I would have trouble falling asleep because I would start obsessing over the thought of what if I died in my sleep and my now 10 and 6 year old wake up and they find me that way. And what are they going to do? Do they know to call 911? Do they know to call, you know, their grandma? Would they be able to even open the chain latch that I have on our door? Like, it's way up high to let paramedics in or, oh my gosh, I, and then just the impact if they were to find me that way. I wouldn't want them to find me that way. So eventually I, I had already had a psychiatrist because after I had my daughter, I, was diagnosed with postpartum depression. And so I was already on medication for anxiety and depression, but he had uh, prescribed me like an extra anxiety medication, like as needed. But then I'd be afraid to take it because I think that what if it like slowed down my heart and I died from taking this medicine, you know? But I eventually did go to therapy. <sighs> It helped a lot. It it helped to know that what I was thinking and what I was feeling was normal. And that it's completely understandable to be afraid to go to sleep. When we don't know what happened. So therapy definitely helped you then. Oh, yeah, definitely. And even talking to my mom... And talking to my best friend, it's not the same as therapy. And I know some people think that it is, but it's not. It's when you have a good therapist or a counselor that you can talk to, it's, it's much more effective because you can be 
as detailed without worrying about what this person thinks or worrying about how they feel about what you're saying. You know, when you have personal relationships, you say, oh, well, I can't tell them that because it would upset them. So with the trained therapist, I could tell her all the details, like I told you today, and work things out through my head. If, if you were to describe Kevin to someone, what would you say? <laughs> He's a great guy. God, he made me feel so adored and loved and safe. And he even put up with me when I was in a bad mood for no reason. But he was such a fun, loving guy. Being with Kevin was like when you're in your car driving with the windows down and the music up and you're singing along and just that feeling that kind of free but hopeful and happy feeling. That's what he made me feel like every single day. And if you can find someone like that, if you can ever meet somebody like that, you need to be with that person. You know, he taught me how to stop and take things in, how to be present and in the moment, especially with the kids. And I try to do this still because he was just so he talked to the kids and really listened. You know, as a parent, sometimes you just get caught up in your day-to-day and having to get things done. But he he taught me how to slow down and just appreciate being and appreciate the moment that you're in and appreciate the person that you're with and to really make those connections. I mean, he was an amazing friend to so many people you wouldn't even believe. He had friends still from grade school and he had friends from all different parts of his life. And he brought all these people together. What's your favorite memory of Kevin? I have a lot of really great memories with him, but the one that really makes me, you know, stop and just kind of, soak in the the pride and the happiness was when we were together he turned he was turning 40 which it's a big birthday i wanted to make his 40th birthday really special and so i decided that i was going to throw him a surprise party which wasn't easy because we had only been dating for a couple years and I didn't know most of his friends and I was like, how am I going to pull this off? But I ended up getting in touch with a friend of his that owns a restaurant here in town. And I said, Hey, I really want to do this. I want to invite like 60 people. <laughs> you know, I want this to be huge. And he's like, okay, you know, we'll make it work. So uh, I, contacted the friends that I did know and they contacted other friends and they contacted other friends and I created this secret Facebook group for <laughs> all these people and I was like I want this I, I want everybody that means a lot to him to all be in one place like how cool would that be and like I said we had people that he had known from grade school from high school from sporting events from just 
all walks of life. He knew all these people from past jobs. And I told him, I said, hey, I'm going to take you out to dinner. Me and the kids were in the car. And I was like, let's go to Mama Luisa's because he like he, he loved the food there. So I was like, let's go there. I'm going to take you to dinner, you know, have nice little family dinner. And so he was like, oh, okay, you know, just going along. Did the, did the kids know? Yes. But <laughs> they, you know, kids are so bad at keeping secrets. Oh, that would <laughs> make me nervous. Yeah. Yes. And I was just like, you can't say anything. Don't say anything. So um, <laughs> it was it was just so funny because they were so excited about this, too, because, you know, they they were in on the secret. So we walked in and of course he's carrying Lindsay and we have this on video, like from probably four different angles. And he walks into the restaurant. We walk like kind of towards the back area where there's like a, a lot of bigger tables. And he, you could see that he recognizes his mom and he recognizes my mom and he smiles. And, and then he kind of like scans the rest of the crowd and realizes that pretty much the entire restaurant all of his friends and all these people that he knows and his family. And he's like, what? <laughs> like, he was so shocked. People he hadn't seen in years. We had people coming from Phoenix and Florence and we live in Tucson and it was so great. We were able to take pictures of like groups of friends. Like he didn't have pictures of all of his friends together like that you know, and his friends had kids and they were all there. And it was, it was just such an amazing time. And he could not believe that I had pulled it together and was able to do that. And, you know, even his friends still now they tell me, thank you so much. Unfortunately for some of them, that was last time they had seen him. He had just turned 41 when he died. Hang on to that memory. Yeah. Well, that was a tough one. But Monica did great in getting through that, didn't she? After we spoke, she told me that she's really glad she decided to do this because now she doesn't have to worry about keeping all those little details in her head anymore. It's all recorded here forever. And her kids, and maybe her grandkids, can someday listen to this and know what happened and what she went through. And I wanted to let you know, another episode of Raw Audio is now live. The Raw Audio episodes are bonus episodes that are available to anyone who supports the podcast for just $5 a month. The newest episode is Raw Audio 13, and it includes a man who is desperate to get help for his fiance who is choking. And this call generated some controversy about how the dispatcher handled it. What was she choking on? No, no! Okay, you need to calm down, okay? The ambulance is on its way. A man who accidentally left his young child in the car. No! No! Please get somebody to hear me immediately. I'm at the intersection of James and Farrokes. My son was left in the car, and I think he's, I think he's dead. And a police officer who decided the stress was too much for his family. And I killed her because she 
she's in such chronic pain from her neck and back and on more medicines and she's not going to survive. You get access to all 13 raw audio episodes as well as the future ones when you sign up to support the podcast at whatwasthatlike.com support. And check this out. You remember the recent episode about Gil who fell 100 feet off a cliff while hiking? Well, I recently got this voicemail from a listener who heard that episode and made a surprising connection. Hey, so I have been a longtime listener and I really enjoy your podcast. I was listening to Gil's story today and I heard them say that they were brought to Astoria in Oregon and it dawned on me that my cousin is a helicopter pilot for the Coast Guard um, and lives in Astoria and I thought there's no way that was him but I had to go check so I immediately sent him a message and he got back to me and yes he in fact was the pilot of the helicopter that rescued Gil in that episode so i thought that was pretty cool and he's gonna give the podcast a listen and hear Gil's side of the story small world right i thought that was pretty cool and finally to end the show we have a short story from a listener you might have noticed i've done this for a few recent episodes and it's been pretty well received so i think this is going to become a regular segment for the podcast we'll just play out each episode with a short story from a listener I mean, you can't have too many interesting stories, right? Stay safe. I'll see you in two weeks. When you find out that you're going to be on Shark Tank, you prepare yourself for a lot of different outcomes. You prepare yourself for the euphoria of getting a deal and getting an investment on live TV from one of your favorite sharks. You also prepare yourself for the possibility of humiliating yourself on national TV and having all your friends see what an idiot you look like. What you don't prepare for is violence. When my business partner and I showed up in LA, it was after a long flight. And uh, just so you know, they don't send you down in first class. They send you down in Southwest Airlines on the cheapest ticket they can get. And I sat in the center seat and was exhausted when we got there. So we went out drinking. At the bar where we were drinking, there were a couple other contestants, including one who was very obnoxious and insisted on showing us pictures of his cars and his watches, bragging about the money that he had made developing apps. Soon, this guy went from being a blowhard to an asshole, and he started to harass the bartender. At that point, he said some things that were very offensive, and I proceeded to remove him from the bar. I put him in a little arm lock and I threw him out. Uh, I'm not a tough guy. He was just a small guy, which enabled me to do this. I returned to the bar and uh, the nice folks who were sitting around the bar gave me a little ovation, which felt good because uh, I never do this kind of stuff. I sat down, I had another drink, and within a couple of minutes, out of the corner of my eye, I see him running from the kitchen at me and he runs up to me and punches me square in the temple. It didn't knock me out, but it hurt and made me dizzy. And the first thing I did is I put him into a headlock and I was going to start to punch him. And my business partner said, don't do it. Do not jeopardize our chance. The manager of the restaurant came up and said, hey, I can have the Culver City police here in five minutes. And I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. 
let's just get him out of here and lock the door behind him. The manager took him out and uh, he never came back. The next morning in the hotel lobby, I run into the guy and he pretended not to remember what happened, which actually was probably the best course of action because that way there was no uncomfortable, I should have kicked your ass moments. It was just an odd exchange between me and some dude who was pretending to be blacked out. The irony of this situation was that the product that this dude was there to pitch to the sharks was an anti-bullying app. His segment never did end up airing, so he has nothing to do with Shark Tank, and there's no way anyone could find out who this guy is. But the long and the short of it is anything can happen when you go on Shark Tank, including getting punched in the head. My name is Matt Franklin, and since my appearance on Shark Tank, I've uh, started a podcast called The Rogue Retirement Lounge, and it's all about retirement planning for entrepreneurs.